0: Part One, Section Two of My Mortal Enemy by Willa Cather. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Part One, Section Two The big stone house, set in its ten acre park of trees and surrounded by a high wrought iron fence, in which Myra Driscoll grew up, was still, in my time, the finest property in Parthia. At John Driscoll's death it went to the Sisters of the Sacred Heart, and I could remember it only as a convent. Myra was an orphan, and had been taken into this house as a very little girl and brought up by her great-uncle. John Driscoll made his fortune employing contract labor in the Missouri swamps. He retired from business early, returned to the town where he had been a poor boy, and built a fine house in which he took great pride. He lived in what was considered great splendor in those days. He kept fast horses, and bred a trotter that made a national record. He bought silver instruments for the town band, and paid the salary of the bandmaster. When the band went up to serenade him on his birthday and on holidays, he called the boys in and treated them to his best, whiskey. If Myra gave a ball or a garden party, the band furnished the music. It was, indeed— John Driscoll's Band. Myra, as my aunt often said, had everything—dresses and jewels, a fine riding-horse, a Steinway piano. Her uncle took her back to Ireland with him one summer and had her painted by a famous painter. When they were at home in Parthia, his house was always open to the young people of the town. Myra's good looks and high spirits gratified the old man's pride. Her wit was of the kind that he could understand, native and racy and none too squeamish. She was very fond of him, and he knew it. He was a coarse old codger, so unlettered that he made a poor showing with a pen. It was always told of him that when he became president of our national bank, he burned a lot of the treasury notes sent up to his house for him to sign, because he had spoiled the signature but he knew a great deal about men and their motives. In his own way he was picturesque, and Myra appreciated it. Not many girls would have done so. Indeed, she was a good deal like him. The blood tie was very strong. There was never a serious disagreement between them until it came to young Henshaw. Oswald Henshaw was the son of a German girl of good family, and an Ulster Protestant whom Driscoll detested. There was an old grudge of some kind between the two men. This Ulster man was poor and impractical, a wandering schoolmaster, who had a charge for a while of the high school in Parthia, and afterwards taught in smaller towns about. Oswald put himself through Harvard with very little help from his parents. He was not taken account of in our town until he came home from college, a handsome and promising young man, He and Myra met as if for the first time and fell in love with each other. When old Driscoll found that Oswald was calling on his niece, he forbade him the house. They continued to meet at my grandfather's, however, under the protection of my Aunt Lydia. Driscoll so persecuted the boy that he felt there was no chance for him in Parthia. He roused himself and went to New York. He stayed there two years without coming home— "'sending his letters to Myra through my aunt. "'All Myra's friends were drawn into the web of her romance. "'Half a dozen young men understudied for Oswald so assiduously "'that her uncle might have thought she was going to marry any one of them. "'Oswald, meanwhile, was pegging away in New York, "'at a time when salaries were small and advancement was slow. "'But he managed to get on, and in two years he was in a position to marry.' He wrote to John Driscoll, telling him his resources and prospects, and asked him for his niece's hand. It was then that Driscoll had it out with Myra. He did not come at her in a tantrum, as he had done before, but confronted her with a cold business proposition. If she married young Henshaw, he would cut her off without a penny. He could do so because he had never adopted her. If she did not— "'she would inherit two-thirds of his property. "'The remaining third was to go to the church. "'And I advise ye to think well,' he told her. "'It's better to be a stray dog in this world than a man without money. "'I've tried both ways, and I know. "'A poor man stinks, and God hates him.' "'Some months after this conversation, Myra went out with a sleighing party.' They drove her to a neighboring town where Oswald's father had a school, and where Oswald himself had quietly arrived the day before. There, in the presence of his parents and of Myra's friends, they were married by the civil authority, and they went away on the Chicago Express, which came through at two in the morning. When I was a little girl, my Aunt Lydia used to take me for a walk along the broad stone flagging that ran all the way around the old Driscoll grounds. Through the high iron fence we could see the sisters, out for recreation, pacing two and two under the apple trees. My Aunt would tell me again about that thrilling night, probably the most exciting in her life, when Myra Driscoll came down that path from the house— "'and out of those big iron gates for the last time. "'She had wanted to leave without taking anything but the clothes she wore, "'and indeed she walked out of the house with nothing but her muff "'and her portemonnaie in her hands. "'My prudent aunt, however, had put her toilet articles "'and some linen into a travelling-bag "'and thrown it out of the back window "'to one of the boys stationed under an apple-tree. "'I'll never forget the sight of her,' "'Coming down that walk and leaving a great fortune behind her,' said Aunt Lydia. "'I had gone out to join the others before she came. "'She preferred to leave the house alone. "'We girls were all in sleighs, and the boys stood in the snow holding the horses. "'We had begun to think she had weakened, "'or maybe gone to the old man to try to move him. "'But we saw by the lights behind when the front door opened and shut, "'and here she came with her head high.' "'and that quick little bouncing step of hers. "'Your Uncle Rob lifted her into the sleigh, and off we went. "'And that hard old man was as good as his word. "'Her name wasn't mentioned in his will. "'He left it all to the Catholic Church and to institutions. "'But they've been happy anyhow,' I sometimes asked her. "'Happy? "'Oh, yes, as happy as most people.' that answer was disheartening the very point of their story was that they should be much happier than other people when i was older i used to walk around the driscoll place alone very often especially on spring days after school and watch the nuns pacing so mildly and measuredly among the blossoming trees where myra used to give garden parties and have the band to play for her i thought of the place as being under a spell like the sleeping beauty's palace it had been in a trance or lain in its flowers like a beautiful corpse ever since that winter night when love went out of the gates and gave the dare to fate since then chanting and devotions and discipline and the tinkle of little bells that seemed forever calling the sisters into prayers i knew that this was not literally true old john driscoll had lived on there for many years after the flight of his niece I myself could remember his funeral, remember it very vividly, though I was not more than six years old when it happened. I sat with my parents in the front of the gallery, at the back of the church that the old man had enlarged and enriched during the latter days of his life. The high altar blazed with hundreds of candles. The choir was entirely filled by the masses of flowers. The bishop was there, and a flock of priests in gorgeous vestments. When the pallbearers arrived, Driscoll did not come up to the church. The church went to him. The bishop and clergy went down the nave and met that great black coffin at the door, preceded by the cross and boys swinging cloudy censers, followed by the choir chanting to the organ. They surrounded, they received, they seemed to assimilate into the body of the church, the body of old John Driscoll. They bore it up to the high altar on a river of color and incense and organ tone. They claimed it and enclosed it. In after years, when I went to other funerals, stark and grim enough, I thought of John Driscoll as having escaped the end of all flesh. It was as if he had been translated with no dark conclusion to the pageant, no night of the grave about which our Protestant preachers talked. From the freshness of roses and lilies, from the glory of the high altar, he had gone straight to the greater glory, through smoking censers and candles and stars. After I went home from that first glimpse of the real Myra Henshaw, twenty-five years older than I had always imagined her, I could not help feeling a little disappointed. John Driscoll and his niece had suddenly changed places in my mind— and he had got, after all, the more romantic part. Was it not better to get out of the world with such pomp and dramatic splendor than to linger on in it, having to take account of shirts and railway trains and getting a double chin into the bargain? The Henshaws were in Parthia three days, and when they left, it was settled that I was to go on to New York with Aunt Lydia for the Christmas holidays— we were to stay at the old Fifth Avenue Hotel, which, as Myra said, was only a stone's throw from their apartment. If at any time a body was to feel disposed to throw one, Liddy. End of Part 1 Section 2